Chapter 33 The Life and Adventures of James P. Beckworth, Mountaineer, Scout, and Pioneer, and Chief of the Crow Nation of Indians. Written from his own dictation by T.D. Bonner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Upper Californians, on account of their great distance from the Mexican government, had long enjoyed the forms of an independent principality. Although recognizing themselves as a portion of the Mexican Republic, they had for years past had the election of their own officers, their governor inclusive, and enjoyed comparative immunity from taxes and other political vexations. Under this abandonment, the inhabitants lived prosperous and contented. Their hills and prairies were literally swarming with cattle. Immense numbers of these were slaughtered annually for their hides and tallow. And as they had no armies of liberation to support, and no costly government to maintain in extravagance, they passed their lives in a state of contentment. Every man sitting under his own vine and his own fig tree. Two years prior to my arrival, all this had been changed. President Santa Anna had appointed one of his creatures, Torreon, governor, with absolute and tyrannical power. He arrived with an army of bandits to subject the defenseless inhabitants to every wrong that a debasing tyranny so readily indulges in. Heavy taxes were imposed for the support of the home government, and troops were quartered to the great annoyance and cost of the honest people. The lives of the inhabitants were continually in danger from the excesses of the worthless vagabonds who had been forced upon them. Their property was rifled before their eyes. Their daughters were ravished in their presence or carried forcibly to the filthy barracks. The people's patience became at length exhausted, and they determined to die rather than submit to such inflictions. But they were ignorant how to shake off the yoke. They were unaccustomed to war and knew nothing about political organizations. However, Providence finally raised up a man for the purpose, General Jose Castro, who had filled the office of commander under the former system, but who had been forced to retire into privacy at the inauguration of the Reign of Terror. He stepped boldly forth and declared to the people his readiness to lead them to the warfare that should deliver their country from the scourge that inflicted them. He called upon them to second his exertions and never desert his banner until California were purified of her present pollution. His patriotic appeal was responded to by all ranks. Hundreds flocked to his standard. The young and the old left their ranches and their cattle grounds and rallied round their well-tried chief.
there was at that time quite a number of Americans in the country, and according to their interests and predilections, they ranged themselves upon opposing sides. Our present worthy and much respected citizen, General Sutter, was at that time, if I mistake not, a colonel in the forces of the central government, and at the outbreak of the revolution he drew his sword for Santa Anna and entered into active service against the rebels in Pueblo de Angeles. There was an American, long resident in the country, named J. Rowland, who sought my cooperation in the popular cause. He said that every American who could use a rifle was a host against the invaders, and besought me to arm in defense and to influence my men likewise to espouse the cause. I replied to his solicitation by promising him my active cooperation, and also that I would represent his arguments to the men living with me. Accordingly, I informed my people that I intended to shoulder my rifle in the defense of life and property, and they were unanimous in their resolution to accompany me. Hence, there were thirteen riflemen instead of one. We shortly after received an accession of sixty more good frontiersmen, and mustered ourselves for service. The company elected me captain, but I declined the office. Mr. Bell finally assumed the command, with the promise of my unflinching support in extremities. Our company steadily increased in number until we had 160 men, including native Californians, who joined us with rifles. General Castro's first movement was against Pueblo. He entered the place at the head of his forces and took the fort arsenal with all the government arms, ammunition, and stores, with the slight loss of one officer wounded. This enabled the rebels to arm themselves, and he was shortly at the head of a small but well-appointed army. The general highly extolled the rifle battalion, and he looked upon it as a powerful support. Castro then took a detachment of rebel troops and proceeded northward to reconnoiter the enemy's position, our main body also moving in the direction of the enemy as far as Monterey, where were the governor's headquarters. On first hearing the intelligence of the outbreak, the governor had put his forces in motion and issued orders to shoot the rebels wherever met and destroy their property of whatever kind. General Castro, having proceeded as far as Santa Barbara, a distance of 96 miles, and having obtained full information concerning the movements of the governor, returned and joined the main body. During his expedition, he captured five Americans in the Mexican service. He disarmed them, telling them that he had no disposition to injure Americans and that he would return their arms as soon as he had expelled the enemies of the people. Our forces were concentrated in a large open prairie, the enemy being stationed at no great distance, likewise on the prairie. 
I ascended one morning the summit of a mountain, which would afford me a fair view of the enemy's camp, just to discover their numbers and strength of position. On my road I encountered two Americans who were serving in the capacity of spies to the enemy. I accosted them and expressed surprise to see them in the service of such an old rascal as Torreon, and recommended them to join the popular cause. But they seemed to have an eye to the promised booty of the rebels, and my arguments could not influence them. I dispatched one of them with a letter to Gant, an American who held the commission of captain in the governor's army, offering him, as we did not wish to fight against our American brethren, to withdraw all the Americans from the rebel ranks, if he would do the same on the side of the governor, and leave the Mexicans and Californians, who were most interested in the issue, to measure their strength. Some Germans who were with us also made the same proposal to Colonel Sutter. Our messenger conveyed the dispatches and delivered the German's letter to Colonel Sutter, who read both that and our letter to Captain Gant. He returned for answer that, unless the Americans withdrew from the insurgent army immediately, he would shoot us every one by ten o'clock the next morning. This embittered us the more against the barbarity of the opposing power, and we resolved to make their leaders, not accepting Sutter, feel the effects of our rifles as soon as they placed themselves within range. On the following morning, a weak and ineffective cannonade commenced on both sides. We lay low, awaiting the enemy's charge. As their riflemen had not shown themselves, and we were desirous to obtain a sight of them, myself, with seven or eight others, advanced cautiously in search of them. On our way, we discovered a small cannon which the enemy had loaded and was about to discharge upon our ranks. Had there been a gunner among them, it must have done us great injury. We advanced within a few yards of the piece, and had raised ourselves up to shoot the artillerymen, when one of our party arrested our aim by suddenly exclaiming, Don't shoot! Don't shoot! He then pointed out the enemy's riflemen carefully emerging from a hollow, with the intention of stealing upon our flank and saluting us with a volley of lead. I laid down my rifle and hailed them to halt. I recognized a number of mountaineers among them, with some of whom I had intimate acquaintance, and I urged them to adopt the cause of the people, for the side they had now espoused was one no American should be seen to defend. They heard me through, and all, or nearly all the Americans, were persuaded by my arguments, and returned with me to join our battalion. This assured us of victory. The cannonade was perfectly harmless. Some of the balls passed 300 feet over our heads. Others plowed up the prairie as near to their ranks as ours. All the damage we received was one wagon shivered to pieces and a horse killed under Colonel Price, which animal had been captured by us at Pueblo and was now serving in the rebel forces with the same rank 
he had held under government. The desertion of the riflemen seriously affected the enemy's prospects of victory. Ten o'clock had passed, and Colonel Sutter had not put his threat into execution. The enemy finally retired from the field and marched in the direction of Pueblo. I took a party and ascended a mountain to watch the progress of the retiring foe. We stayed out some hours with the view to learn where they encamped. While thus employed, a courier sent from our commander brought us orders to return immediately. We instantly obeyed and found the army gone with only one man remaining to direct our steps. On coming up with our forces, we found that our colonel had made a movement which cut off all retreat from the enemy, and which must bring him to an engagement or an unconditional surrender. In the morning, I again took a party with me and mounted an eminence to reconnoiter the enemy's position. We approached to within 500 yards of their camp, where we shot a bullock, which we quietly proceeded to dress. While we were thus engaged, I perceived an officer approaching from the enemy's camp to ascertain who we were. I took my rifle and dodged among the bushes, eager to get a shot at him. But before I could do so, one of my men prematurely fired and missed his mark. The officer had dismounted in order to get a nearer view of us, and this admonitory shot warned him back into camp. Myself and another advanced to within fifty rods of it and boldly seized the officer's horse, and they did not fire a shot at us. We saw their camp was hemmed in on all sides. Our artillery was placed in battery, matches lighted, and men in position. All was ready for action. The enemy, perceiving their desperate condition, sent a flag of truce for a negotiation. Articles of capitulation were eventually drawn up and signed, to the effect that the governor and his forces should immediately lay down their arms and leave for Acapulco as soon as their embarkation could be accomplished. Accordingly, they laid down their arms and marched under escort to the Embaradara, distant twenty miles from Pueblo. The governor was not permitted to return to Monterey, but his lady was sent for to the Embaradara, where she rejoined her husband and they quit the country together. Colonel Sutter, on the day of embarkation, left his detachment of naked Indians with the army and proceeded, as we supposed, to his fort on the Sacramento. But he returned the next day and gave himself up to us. His force of Indians were very well drilled, but would have been far better employed in raising cabbages on his farm than in facing rebel riflemen on the battlefield. A trial was held upon the colonel, which resulted in his full acquittal, with the restoration of all his property fallen into our hands, such as cannon and other military effects, by the surrender of the government forces.
the Americans, in jest probably, seemed very desirous to have the prisoner shot, which produced great alarm in his mind, and recalled to his recollection his recent threat to shoot all the Americans in our army. Our countrymen were almost carried on the shoulders of the Californians, in gratitude for their participation in the revolution. For although the victory had been a bloodless one, they attributed their easily won success to the dread inspired by the name of their American Confederates. After seeing the departure of the government troops, the rebel army returned to Pueblo, where they elected Colonel Pico governor. Colonel, now General Castro, commander of the forces, and filled other less important offices. Fandangos, which were continued for a week, celebrated our success, and these festivities over, the insurgents returned to their various homes and occupations. Some few weeks after, a small proportion of the inhabitants sought to displace our newly elected chief magistrate and appoint some other in his place. I was sent for during the night to guard the governor's palace with my corps of rifles, and we succeeded in capturing the leading conspirators, who were tried and sent to Acapulco in irons. I had a quarrel with the alcalde shortly after this service, and he put me in irons for cursing him. As soon as the governor heard of my misfortune, he had me immediately discharged from confinement. I now resumed my business, and dispatched my partner, Mr. Waters, after a fresh supply of goods. But before he had time to return, fresh political commotion supervened. There still seemed to exist in the minds of the majority a strong hankering for the domination of Mexico, notwithstanding they had so recently sided with the revolutionists in shaking off the yoke of the national government. Among other causes of excitement, too, the American adventurers resident there had raised the bear flag and proclaimed their intention of establishing an independent government of their own. This caused us to be closely watched by the authorities, and matters seemed to be growing too warm to be pleasant. In the midst of this gathering ferment, news reached us from Mazatlan of the declaration of war between the United States and Mexico, and I deemed it was fully time to leave. Colonel Fremont was at that juncture approaching from Oregon with a force, if combined with the Americans resident there, sufficient to conquer the whole country, and I would have liked exceedingly to join his forces, but to have proceeded toward him would have subjected me to mistrust and consequent capture and imprisonment. If I looked south, the same difficulties menaced me, and the west conducted me to the Pacific Ocean. I had but little time to deliberate. My people was at war with the country I was living in. I had become security to the authorities for the good behavior of several of my fellow countrymen, and I was under recognizance for my own conduct. The least misadventure would compromise me, and I was impatient to get away. My only retreat was eastward, 
So considering all things fair in time of war, I, together with five trusty Americans, collected 1,800 stray horses we found roaming on the Californian ranchos and started with our utmost speed from Pueblo de Angeles. This was a fair capture, and our morals justified it, for it was wartime. We knew we should be pursued, and we lost no time in making our way toward home. We kept our herd jogging for five days and nights, only resting once a day to eat and afford the animals time to crop a mouthful of grass. We killed a fat colt occasionally, which supplied us with meat, and very delicious meat too, rather costly, but the cheapest and handiest we could obtain. After five days' chase, our pursuers relaxed their speed, and we ourselves drove more leisurely. We again found the advantage that I have often spoke of before, of having a drove of horses before us. For as the animals we bestrode gave out, we could shift to a fresh one, while our pursuers were confined to one steed. When we arrived at my fort on the Arkansas, we had over 1,000 head of horses, all in good condition. There was a general rejoicing among the little community at my safe arrival, the Indians also coming in to bid me welcome. I found my wife married again, having been deceived by a false communication. Her present husband had brought her a missive, purporting to be of my indicting, wherein I expressed indifference toward her person, disinclination to return home, and tendering her a discharge from all connubial obligation. She accepted the document as authentic, and solaced her abandonment by espousing her husband's messenger. My return acquainted her with the truth of the matter. She manifested extreme regret at having suffered herself to be imposed upon so readily, and as a remedy for the evil, offered herself back again. But I declined, preferring to enjoy once more the sweets of single blessedness. I left the fort on a visit to San Fernandez. I found business very dull there on account of the war and great apprehensions were felt by my friends in regard to the result. Perceiving that was no very desirable place to remove to, I returned to my community. General Kearney was just then on his march to Santa Fe. I took a drove of my horses and proceeded down the Arkansas to meet him on his route, for it was probable there might be an opportunity of effecting some advantageous exchanges. The general came up and found me in waiting with my stock. We had been acquainted for several years, and he gave me a very cordial reception. Beckworth, said the general, you have a splendid lot of horses, really. They must have cost you a great sum of money. No, General, I replied, but they cost me a great many miles of hard riding. How so? he inquired. Why, I was in California at the time the war broke out, and not having men enough at my command to take part in the fighting, 
I thought I could assist my country a little by starting off a small drove of the enemy's horses, in order to prevent their being used against us. Ha <laughs> Beckworth! You are truly a wonderful man to possess so much forethought. And he laughed heartily. However, added he, trade them off as quickly as possible, for I want you to accompany me. You like war, and I have good use for you now. I informed him that I was ready for service, and accordingly I sent all my remaining horses back to my plantation, and went on with the general to Santa Fe, which place submitted without firing a shot. The general sent me immediately back to Fort Leavenworth with dispatches. This was my service during the war. The occupation was a tolerably good one, and I never failed in getting my dispatches through. I enjoyed facilities superior to almost any other man, as I was known to almost all the Indians through whose country I passed. My partner and I had purchased a hotel in Santa Fe, and we transacted a very profitable business there. My associate attended to the business of the hotel, while I carried dispatches, and Santa Fe was generally my starting place. Many messengers lost their lives on the route, as at times there were dispatches to be sent, and I would not be at headquarters to carry them. The distance from Santa Fe to Fort Leavenworth is 913 miles. I have frequently made the trip in from 20 to 25 days, my shortest trip I accomplished in 18. I well knew that my life was at stake every trip that I made, but I liked the employment. There was continual excitement in it, indeed sometimes more than I actually cared about, more particularly when I fell in with the Pawnees. The service furnished an escort of 15 or 25 men, but I always declined the company of troops, as I considered myself safer without them. If I had taken troops with me, it would have led to incessant fights with the Indians, and if they had seen me with white soldiers, they would have been very apt to kill me the first opportunity. Another thing, I did not think the United States regular troops good for anything against the Indians for I knew that the Comanches would stand and fight them almost man for man. I chanced to fall in with Kit Carson one day. As I was about to start from New Mexico to Fort Leavenworth, and he proposed going with me, as he wished to learn my route. I was very much pleased with his proposal, as I thought that with Kit and his men I should go through strong-handed. I told him that I should rest at Teos one day to get my horses shod, and that he could easily come up with me there, or on the road thither. I left with two men, and stayed at Teos as appointed, but he failed to rejoin us. I rode on as far as my ranch. Still he did not appear. I built a large fire before proceeding into the Indian country thinking to attract him by the smoke and thus bring him on to our trail. But I saw no more of him, 
and it was supposed he was lost until he eventually turned up in the city of Washington. We both had a narrow escape from Indians on that trip. I had, contrary to my usual practice, encamped one night in the prairie, and was to start in the morning, when we heard buffalo running close to our camp. On looking out, I saw a great number chased by the Pawnees, although the Indians were not yet in sight. We made all possible haste to the timber, threw our horses on their sides, gagged them and fastened them to the ground, and then secreted ourselves in the willows. The Indians flocked round, busied in their pursuit, and some of the buffaloes they dressed within gunshot of our secret camp. I thought that day the longest I had lived through, and I expect the poor animals thought so too, for they lay in one position the whole time, without food or water, and without being permitted to whisper a complaint. At night we made good our escape, and arrived at the fort without further difficulty. When I was ready to return to Santa Fe, I could find no one willing to accompany me. The weather was intensely cold, and no inducement that I could offer was sufficient to tempt men to leave their comfortable fires and encounter the perils of the Indians and Jack Frost in the prairies. Many men had been frozen to death on the route, and a general shudder ran through the company when I proposed the journey to them. I could have been furnished with soldiers in plenty, but I was unwilling to take them, as it imposed so much trouble on the road to stay to bury every man that perished with the hardships of the journey. Important dispatches had arrived from Washington, which must go through, and I looked fruitlessly round for a man hardy enough to go with me. At length, a boy, a Kentuckian, volunteered. He had followed the army to the fort, and had lived about the barracks until he had become well accustomed to the privations of a camp life. He was an intelligent lad, but unfortunately had a malformation of one of his feet, which seriously impeded his walking. However, I liked his pluck in proposing, and eventually consented to take him. I went with him to the sutler's store, and procured him the warmest clothing I could, and then bade him repair to my boarding house, and stay there until I was ready to start. When I was prepared for departure, I furnished him with a good horse, and taking an extra one between us, we started on the long journey. I gave him particular directions that if he should become very cold, he was to acquaint me, and I would stay and build a fire to warm him by wherever there was any wood, but the proposition he declined. Three days after we reached the Arkansas and encamped, Isaac was busied in preparing supper, while I walked to an eminence close by in order to survey the country. I perceived an immense number of Indians approaching directly toward us, and at not more than three or four hundred yards distance. I shouted to Isaac to catch the horses quickly and tether them, and I hastened back to the camp. 
He inquired what the matter was, and I told him there were a thousand Indians coming after us. The approaching individuals belonged to the Comanche tribe and numbered over a thousand warriors. They were in full speed. They dashed through the Arkansas with such precipitation that I thought they would throw all the water out of the channel and hurl it onto the bank. I ran in front of the advance and challenged them to stop. They halted for a moment and asked me who I was. I told them the crow. Thereupon, they grabbed me up like a chicken and carried me into our little camp. They had nine white men's scalps, which, to appearance, were hardly yet cold, and they said they must kill my white boy, and his scalp would just make ten. I told them the boy was my nephew, and that they must not kill him, that great braves never kill boys. They then conversed among themselves a minute or two, and finally said, He, being your nephew, may live. Tell him to make us some good black soup. I foresaw that my coffee and sugar must suffer, for my black soup they meant coffee. I directed Isaac to set about making it, but to secrete a little for ourselves, if he could do so unperceived. The Comanches have a great fondness for coffee, and I never fell in with them without having to part with all I had, and I sometimes imagined they preferred my coffee and sugar to my scalp. The same day, just before dusk, while jogging steadily along, the boy discovered a small party of Pawnees. I hastily dismounted and tied the heads of our three horses together to prevent them running and directed the boy to see they did not move. I then took his gun and my own, and went away from the horses. As I was leaving, the boy inquired if he should fire too. I told him no, not unless I was killed, and then to defend himself as best he could. I took a secure position and fired. An Indian fell. I fired again and killed a second. They cracked away at me, but did no harm. I reloaded and fired again, until I had leveled five of them, they retreating at every discharge. When the fifth warrior fell, the whole party fell back to cry. I knew that, after they had cried for a few minutes, they would make a rush for revenge. Therefore, I shouted to the boy to cut the animals loose and mount in haste. He did so. I sprung on my horse instantly, and we flew away, leaving the mourners to their lamentations. At every foe I shot, the boy would ejaculate, Whoop! You fetched him! He's got his gruel! and other sayings thereby displaying more bravery than many men would have shown under similar circumstances. Ever afterward, he considered that we were a match for any number of Pawnees, and as for the Comanches, I could beat them off with black soup. We traveled on for several miles and then encamped. In the morning, I started along a ravine for our horses, 
which had strayed away. I returned toward the camp, where I found that they had taken themselves up another small ravine, and that I had passed them. While thus pursuing the stray animals, the boy came to acquaint me that he had seen a great number of Indians. I led the horses to the camp, and then mounted a little rise of ground, from whence I descried a large village. I did not know what tribe they belonged to, though I knew they were not Pawnees, for that tribe never visited this country except on war excursions. I took the boy and walked with him up to the village, but their faces were all strange to me, nor did I like their appearance and movements. On perceiving one at a little distance wrapped in his robe, I thought he might possibly be a chief, and I approached him. He addressed me in crow. Ah, my friend, what brought you here? I replied that, as I was passing through, I had thought it well to call on him. I am glad to see you, said he. Enter my lodge. My warriors are bad today. The Indians were Apaches, and the chief was named Black Shield, an old and intimate acquaintance. He insisted on my spending the night in the village, which I consented to. He was perfectly rabid toward the whites, and stated his intention to manure the prairie with their bodies the forthcoming season. He would not leave one in the country. I applauded his intention, telling him the whites were unable to fight. Seeing that I was on his side, that is, if my words made me so, he continued, I have plenty of warriors and plenty of guns and balls, but I am a little short of powder. When will you return? I informed him as nearly as I could calculate, but I added that my return was uncertain. Will you bring me some powder? he inquired. I will, I said, but I shall return by way of the Eagle's Nest Hill. That is the very place I am going to from here, he rejoined. And if I am not there myself, some of my warriors will be, and they can take it from you. This afforded me no put-off, and I accordingly promised to furnish him with the powder. If the reader will indulge me in a witticism, I beg to assure him that I carried the powder to the old chief in a horn. In the morning, he furnished me with meat enough to subsist us for a week, together with new moccasins and sundry other articles. We then bade him adieu, and proceeded on our journey, arriving at Santa Fe without any farther noteworthy adventure. On reaching my destination, I informed some of my friends of my promise to the Black Shield, and where they could find him to deliver the powder, to enable him to carry out his commendable resolution. A party started to meet him at the appointed spot, but in delivering the powder they managed to explode it, and he and his warriors only received the bullets, of which they already had plenty. End of chapter 33